0: Let's rev up the engine to reach escape velocity from all this zaniness in the world today. And let's enter the orbit of rational thought that you find in the Far Middle podcast. I am Nick Diolius. I'm a dissident who chooses to live in truth, as Václav Havel so eloquently put it. And I'm your host, bringing you episode 142. Happy Groundhog Day from a few days back. And I believe, if memory serves me well, that we covered a little bit of the history of Groundhog Day last year this time. or Maybe it was two years ago. Time flies. But anyway, no need to rehash that now. You can access it in the archives on nickdeulius.com if you are so inclined. And I have no idea what the famous Pennsylvania animal did this time or what it means for weather. I don't pay much attention to that. But anyway, I do love the movie Groundhog Day. And one of my favorite quotes is from Phil. That's the character played by, of course, Bill Murray, who famously summed up the event in the movie with the following quote. This is pitiful. A thousand people freezing their butts off waiting to worship a rat. What a hype. Groundhog Day used to mean something in this town. They used to pull the hog out and they used to eat it. You're hypocrites. All of you. Classic Bill Murray. Sports dedication time, and thank you to those who've let me know how you're enjoying the new path we've chosen with our sports dedications for the past dozen or so episodes where we're taking something or someone of note in the sports world, but also tie it or tie them into a significant historical and non-sports aspect, good or bad, uh, but certainly noteworthy and interesting in either uh, type of case. Well, for episode 142, we have a case of an individual that decided the almost unthinkable with today's pro athlete and end up paying a heavy price, the ultimate price, in fact, someone we should not forget as time marches on. And an example of how we must always remain wary of war and the machinations of government. I speak of and dedicate this episode to Pat Tillman and not for what he achieved as a pro football player, but what he did and what happened to him right after 9-11 and what the system ended up doing to his family. Now, he might have been the prototypical all-American kid, California native. He was very close to his family and friends, and many of those friends trace back to his days in high school. He drew strength from his friends and his parents and his wife, who, by the way, was his high school sweetheart. And he was especially tight with his brother, Kevin, who was in the military also. And as we'll discuss in a minute, he served alongside Pat after 9-11. So Tillman, he goes to Arizona State University in 1994. He ended up uh, earning the last scholarship for the football team. And he was an exceptional but an undersized linebacker at ASU. ASU went undefeated his junior year and made it to the Rose Bowl that season. And in 1997, he was the Pac-10 Defensive Player of the Year. Remember when we had a Pac-10 conference and Arizona State's uh, team MVP. He was a great student. Graduated in three and a half years, so he graduated early, and he had a GPA of 3.85, which isn't too shabby. And, of course, he earned a slew, as you might imagine, with that GPA of academic awards in college. And he also, later in life, I'm not sure if he did this in college, but, uh, but after his college days, he studied all kinds of religions. Really got into studying different religions. But guess what? He was an atheist. Very interesting. So 1998 comes. It's NFL draft time. Tillman, he gets selected at the 226th pick to the Arizona Cardinals. So he stayed in Arizona. And I'm not sure if the Cardinals felt they had a better read on Tillman since he played college close by, but it was a good selection that late in the draft for the Cardinals for sure. And Tillman was moved to safety in the NFL, which made more sense for him considering his size and and attributes. And he ended up starting his rookie season. Now, Tillman was loyal, maybe to a fault. So let me explain to you. sort of illustrate how loyal he was get this at one point in his NFL career he turned down a five year nine million dollar contract offer from the St. Louis Rams out of loyalty to the Cardinals the team that he played for like I said not your typical pro athlete then 9-11 happens and everything changes changes for everybody but Tillman makes a change beyond what just about all of us adjusted or how all of us changed in May of 2002 That's eight months after the attacks. Tillman turned down a contract offer of $3.6 million over three years from the Cardinals, and instead he enlisted in the U.S. Army. He was changing careers in epic fashion, and this and what followed is why he is our dedication subject for this week's episode. So Tillman and, as I mentioned, his brother, they enlist in 2002. They completed basic training together, and they went into the Army Rangers' Pat Tillman participated in the initial invasion of Iraq as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom, and then was deployed to Afghanistan. In 2004, he was initially reported to have been killed by enemy combatants. Now, the Army initially claimed that Tillman and his unit were attacked in an apparent ambush on a road outside of a village near the border with Pakistan. But after investigation, and investigations actually, it was determined his death was due to friendly fire, a mistake, which unfortunately is all too common in war with its inevitable confusion on the battlefield. We're seeing a lot of that actually today with Russia and Ukraine in terms of uh, friendly fire causing substantial levels of casualties. And then war, of course, in and of itself is de facto unfortunate. Now, there was a lot of controversy about how the military handled the situation and whether it was being upfront with the Tillman family and the public. The story of being killed in active combat against an enemy, that plays much better to recruiting, and it boosts the image of the military. But friendly fire deaths, they don't achieve those things. So there was, at best, I'd call it a delay, a significant delay in coming out with the truth, and that's probably under the best of light. Tillman's unit uh, ended up burning his body armor and his uniform, and the sort of thought there it might have been apparently an attempt to hide the fact that he was killed by friendly fire. And by the way, his notes in his notebook, he was a pretty extensive uh, note taker. They were also destroyed. Tillman's brother ended up testifying before Congress. And here's a quote from Pat Tillman's brother. The deception surrounding this case was an insult to the family. But more importantly, its primary purpose was to deceive a whole nation. I thought that was a pretty powerful statement from Pat's um, brother. So Pat Tillman, uh, after his death, received the Silver Star and Purple Heart medals. And many of the themes of the far middle, we find them apparent in the life of Pat Tillman. Um, On the light side, of course, sports. But then there's also him being the exemplar of a great American doing exceptional things uh, with a very unique life. And then there's the heavy side with how government dictates much when it comes to the individual and how outcomes um, play out with regard to individual opportunities and the individuals themselves. But here is to a true American, Mr. Pat Tillman, and our dedication for episode 142. We march on with Far Middle 142 wrapping in this episode, our third and final installment of our trilogy that laid out a rational thinkers way of navigating through climate change and all the policies that are tied to climate change, uh, whether they're climate policies or energy policies. Energy realities and policies, that's a reason why the Middle East is of vital importance to the United States and other nations today and why the region frankly remains a flashpoint, which was and is a contributor as to why and how Pat Tillman ended up being there. In climate policies, they impact geopolitics and they make places like the East more volatile than ever Yeah, the fact of the matter is that tackling climate change, it does precipitate global strife, making the world, ironically, much more dangerous than it would have been without all the inept tackling of climate change that's going on. So in this episode, we discuss what the real or the true drivers are behind these climate policies that when you assess from a chemistry, physics, math, and economics series of perspectives. And when you do that, it's going to become very clear very soon the climate policies make absolutely no sense. And there's two different ways to approach this because there's two different broad groups of stakeholders that are going to benefit from these in policies. And one more stakeholder group being of the external type with respect to places like the United States, and one of these stakeholder groups being more of the internal type within the United States and the West. And we're gonna talk about both. We start with the external stakeholders. Pause for a minute and consider the adversaries that are out there to Republican democracies all over the world. Who are they? They are largely, if not exclusively, leftist in nature. And that can be communist or socialist or authoritarian or some combination often of two or three of those. They're all benefiting, ironically, from our own energy and climate policies and benefiting greatly on an unprecedented scale, I might add. So let's go on a quick world tour, a walk across the map to highlight this dynamic at play. OPEC is a great example of this, so we'll start there. OPEC was left for dead with the advent of the American shale revolution that the private sector and free enterprise and innovation and disruptive technology all brought to bear. But then came the climate policies and the energy policies that effectively ban and or mandate the walking away from domestic energy sources like natural gas and also sources like nuclear. Well, that plays right into OPEC's hands, and it does so on a couple of different fronts. First, there is an energy balance for every region, nation and society that has to be satisfied or filled at the end of the day. And if it's not satisfied or filled, the lights go out and society crumbles. That equation, it just has to be satisfied. Again, society and economies demand their BTUs and their kilowatt hours and their horsepower. Now, if you hope that wind and solar are going to be able to provide our electricity needs and you hope that electric vehicles, they're going to be able to provide an economy's way of transporting people and products to and from, you're sadly mistaken and going to be hugely disappointed. Now, as Europe has learned, you'll need something, anything, if you're desperate enough, even if it's Russian natural gas. Or in the case of the rest of the world, it will need something like OPEC oil to make those energy balances work. There's no alternative because you've killed the reliable domestic sources due to climate zealotry. And you've bet on the unreliable to fill the void with wind, solar and EVs. So we find OPEC is once again exerting its control and acting in its own self-interest, but we've given it that control through our climate and energy policies. I also mentioned Russia, perhaps exhibit A, in these negative consequences and the true drivers of these climate and energy policies. It's been well-established that Russian interests, whether they were Russian companies or state actors, had been huge funders and supporters behind the scenes of the ban fracking movement across Europe and America. I'm sure Russian interests applaud the net zero and code red crowd day by day and policy by policy. Europe's a great example as to why Russia would want that. That gives Russia leverage, it emboldens it, and it makes it much more likely to invade countries like the Ukraine and maybe, just maybe not stop there. Just ask the leaders of governments all across Eastern Europe how they're feeling these days with respect to Russia. Energy policy or climate policy That's the single biggest enabler that made all those negative things come true with respect to what's going on in Eastern Europe. Now, Venezuela, which we talked about last episode in uh, series two or the second video of the trilogy, that's a really interesting case. That nation went from effectively a pariah and under heavy sanction from the United States to one now where not only sanctions are easing, but our leaders now ask forgiveness from the leaders of Venezuela so that Venezuela produces more oil or sells more oil throughout the global markets to try to tamp down energy volatility in chaotic energy markets. Now Venezuela, it knows, it senses that we need it, so what does it do? It starts to get much more aggressive toward its neighbor in Guyana because Guyana holds significant oil reserves. And Venezuela wants to be able to control those reserves moving forward. And then there's China. Maybe not the most timely today when you've got someone like Russia to talk about or a pending invasion from Venezuela. But China clearly is the biggest single example of who benefits the most with respect to climate policies and net zero journeys to really bad places. China by design has structured its economy. It's made its investments across the globe to put a stranglehold around every imaginable supply chain component of wind, solar, EVs, and batteries. To think for a minute that we're going to be able in Europe or the United States or North America to mine enough, process enough, manufacture enough of this stuff that's needed for a net zero plan when it comes to wind, solar, and EVs, that thought is ridiculous. What we're going to do is we're going to trade our energy independence that we enjoyed not long ago because of things like natural gas and domestic oil and our grid, and we're going to exchange that for an energy dependency on none other than China. That's, of course, not going to be a good thing. Yes, you see these examples from an external stakeholder perspective of leftist regimes all over the planet. And not only are they big beneficiaries of climate policies and net zero paths, I believe in many ways, they're trying to incite those as best they can. But then there's a second perspective with respect to what's behind all of this. And it's more ideological than anything else. The best way to define it is as the left within the West itself, whether it's the United States or Europe. The left at the end of the day, more than anything, despises the individual and specifically disdains the freedom of the individual to choose for themselves. Yeah, the left is always looking to tear away that freedom, to tear away that freedom of choice of the individual. And then once torn away, to then place that decision-making, that power in the hands of a higher authority. That higher authority could be a religion, that higher authority could be the state, or sometimes it's a combination of the two. Many of these climate policies and many within the climate alarmist crowd indeed reflect the codification and practicing of an effective religion. But considering what the left is ultimately after, what better way to achieve those aims than through controlling energy markets in the energy industry? And if you wanted to only control one industry out there, one sector of the economy, assuming you can only pick one, and you desire to do that in a way to control everything else, Which sector or which industry would you choose? Well, you know, you can make an argument to go after something like healthcare, or perhaps finance, or maybe tech these days with AI and social media and all of that. But if you only gave me one industry to choose, I would always pick energy. Because the kilowatt hour and the BTU, they touch everything in a modern economy. All those other industries and sectors that I just mentioned, and then all the other industries and sectors that remain. Yep, if you control the kilowatt hour and the BTU, now you can start to control decision-making of all. What you're going to quickly learn and conclude is that climate policies, they're not about atmospheric carbon dioxide levels at all. Anything but. And it's not about the weather or future weather. Anything but. But what it is all about is decision-making and control. So you should start to see climate policies bleeding into things beyond the generation grid if this phenomenon is actually occurring. And you're starting to see that, aren't you? With even things like food. What you can eat and what you should eat is currently being questioned by everyone from environmental advocates on the radical environmental movement front to the United Nations to scores of experts and elites in between. And they are starting to look at the carbon footprints of certain foods, such as red meat. Your hamburger, say goodbye. Um, Certain foods, such as ice cream, which carries, by the way, a significant carbon footprint, and perhaps causing panic for a few of you constant listeners because it also includes assessing and scrutinizing foods such as beer. And if you like beer and ice cream and hamburgers and things like them, I've got some bad news that might be coming your way down the road if these climate policies continue on their inevitable march toward individual rights and individual control. Driving, that's another great example. What better expression of personal freedom is there than the personal automobile, right? It's revolutionized things across all kinds of different societies and periods of time. Well, through EV mandates and a stress grid, also weakened by the way, by climate policies, higher authorities are going to dictate when and if you can charge your EV or when you're allowed to basically drive it. And that's, of course, another way of exerting control. Then there's the concept of 15-minute cities. We covered this topic briefly on a prior episode of The Far Middle. I don't know if you're familiar with the 15-minute city concept or not, but the idea is basically all of this climate policy um, impacts, and sort of tactics, they're all rolled into one within the concept of a 15-minute city, where there's a movement out there where policy should incentivize to demand the forcing and controlling of how individuals should live, not just living in urban areas, which would be dictated, but also within so many minutes and within walking distance of public transportation, because that would be the only modes of transportation that would be acceptable, walking and the subway. And 15-minute cities would require basically living in certain-sized apartment complexes versus larger-sized homes and being told what you can do and when you can do it. We are also seeing climate policy start to rear its head and bleed into the issue of emergency powers, right? It's a climate emergency day or a grid emergency day. We just saw one of those recently in California. So when the weather gets hot or the weather gets cold on the extremes, don't charge your electric vehicle today because we've got into a grid crisis situation. We've got a grid emergency or we've got a climate emergency, which means everything stops until the higher authority says you can continue your way of living or doing. You're basically shut down. You don't run your business. You can't go to work. And of course, leisure activities are completely out of the question. And we've had a wide array of experiences with that coming off of pandemic and the policies that came with it, but that could be something that is permanent with respect to these climate policies. Yeah, you start adding all this up, and what do you have? You've got a situation where the individual loses control over their own decision-making. And then in its place, they're told to basically trust in the higher authority the government, or the state, or whatever the expert is on the matter. They're all going to take care of you. They'll tell you what to do. And we know through hundreds of years of history how that typically turns out when that's the left that's in control and making those decisions. Now, I've said that this is akin to and feels a lot like a religion. Now, as a Catholic, I don't need to look any further than what's going on at the Vatican these days to prove that point take Pope Francis and compare him to somebody like Pope John Paul II, boy, what a contrast. But Pope Francis, in many ways, his policies, they're not necessarily instituting Catholic norms or doctrine upon the flock. They're instead instituting socialist norms and doctrine upon the flock. And the biggest tactical tool in the Pope's toolbox to do that is environmental policies, environmental beliefs. In climate change policies. It reminds me whether it's what's going on with the uh, Vatican or whether what's going on with just policies in general in the United States and Europe on the climate front, it reminds me of the practice of the Catholic Church hundreds of years ago that was known as indulgences. Now I wrote about indulgences in my book Precipice in the chapter on Pope Francis. I encourage you to give that a read. But indulgences were, and forgive the pun, devilishly effective. They worked whereby if you had enough money and you committed some sort of sin, whatever that sin was that the church said was sinful, you could basically buy your way out of it. You paid an indulgence, a fee, and it wiped away the sin. So it was basically a get out of hell, I guess, for free, but really not for free, for a fee type of an approach. So it was obviously looked down upon greatly, and by the way, it was a key contributor, um, root cause, of the Protestant Reformation when people like Martin Luther said, hey, enough is enough. This doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel ethical. Yet climate policies, they're bringing back the theory of indulgences, that the climate change crowd is in the position at this point getting to decide basically what is sin. And what they're saying is that there's a new original sin out there, and that original sin is enjoying a high quality of life, and it's utilizing energy that's affordable and reliable. And we're going to need to change our ways, and we're going to need to tax that. And we're going to need to remove that and eradicate that to whatever level is deemed acceptable by the experts or the higher authorities of the religion or of the state. Now, as an engineer and someone who loves science— Maybe the most troubling thing with regard to many of these climate policies and many of these net zero plans and schemes is that they all hinge on the ability to destroy the scientific method, which, by the way, has brought immeasurable benefits, the scientific method has, to society since the Enlightenment. And in its place of the scientific method, we're going to put climate policies that impose and shove the science, which is an orthodoxy, a religion that's rigid that embraces scientific consensus, with the popular or elite view getting to decide what the consensus is instead of trying to strive to find ways to shatter the consensus and advance the ball and advance the -the state-of-the-art forward. And that, constant listener, that might be the most troubling item in the entire wall of worry that climate policies present. Hey, I hope you enjoyed these discussions that we've had the last couple of weeks on a rational way to approach climate change and climate change policies, you can view videos that discusses this same topic on YouTube under the Nick Deolius channel. Check those out. There's other great content that we post on there all the time. Subscribe to it. I'd encourage you to subscribe to the channel if you want. And I had a lot of fun putting these together, and I hope that they help to clarify your thoughts on this all important topic. Now let's wrap this episode and bring it on home. Hmm, bring it on home. That's a very underrated song by Led Zeppelin, and it's on the Led Zeppelin II album, which was released when? Oh, Led Zeppelin II was released on this episode's release date of February 7th. Now not in 2024, like this far middle episode 142, but back in 1970. The album earned Led Zeppelin its first UK number one uh, sort of title, on the charts. In the Led Zeppelin II effort of the band, it remained on the charts in the UK for 138 weeks. That's almost as many episodes as we published at the far middle, for goodness sake. And in America, Led Zeppelin II, its performance wasn't all that shabby either. It topped the Billboard charts for seven weeks. The album was written throughout the band's 1969 European and American tours, and it was recorded in multiple studios on both sides of the Atlantic. Not a shocker here, but guitarist Jimmy Page was the producer. People just uh, love some of the sort of staple songs of this album. You've got Ramble On, Whole of Love, Heartbreaker. And I think I loved them as well years ago as in the first 10,000 times that I heard each. But they've been just so overplayed through the years that I really don't listen to those songs all that much anymore. But Led Zeppelin II remains an awesome album and there are a pair of hidden gems on that record. First one is What Is and What Should Never Be. That is an awesome composition for a hard rock band, very layered, and it serves, by the way, as a classic moment in cinema with the flip-out scene of Bradley Cooper in Silver Linings Playbook uh, when he lost it and flipped out in his parents' home late at night. That's a great movie scene. Now, the second hidden gem on Led Zeppelin 2, it's that song title that I referenced to make the connection to the album itself, which is, of course, Bring It On Home. That is a great song, and like a lot of Led Zeppelin songs, it's a cover of a blues song. Bring It On Home was written by Willie Dixon and then recorded by Sonny Boy Williamson in 1963. Led Zeppelin ended up doing the cover on Led Zeppelin II, and that's the version that most rock fans are familiar with. They know it better than the original, and many rock fans probably don't realize that the Led Zeppelin version is just a cover. Well, I'll see you next week, or at least I'll talk to you next week. And to borrow two more Led Zeppelin two song titles, I want to thank you for your tuning into The Far Middle. And I want to encourage you to get out there and ramble on.